This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with David Sloan Wilson. He's an evolutionary biologist based at Binghamton University. I spoke with him on May 15, 2012, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in the studios of public radio station WSKG in Binghamton, New York. This interview is included in our show, Evolving a City. Download the MP3 of that produced show at onbeing.org. More? You want more la-las? La-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la. Hello. No. Can they? Is that? Oh, okay. Where? Where are they? Are they? Are they Binghamton? No. Yeah. Like the, at the university. Mm-hmm. Chris, you just tell me when I should chime in. Okay. Hello, a new voice. Oh. Hello? Hello. Oh, you can hear me? Yes, I can. Oh, hi, this is Christy Tippett. Hey, Christy, how are you? Good. Um, I wasn't sure. Oh, let's see. I think the technologically adept people here are speaking to each other, so I'll be quiet for a minute. All right. Are you going to be interviewing me? Yes, I am. Okay, good. I will observe her name is Krista, not Christy. Thank you. <laughs> That's you. all right. I, I'm really the only one who needs to know how to say your name correctly. So, Well, I could just say your name, too. I want to get that right. So. <laughs> all right. I, I think we may have—I don't know if we met. I think—I know I've experienced you maybe at a Templeton conference or at something at Stanford years ago. Could be but either any, one of those. Yeah, and I, but I've been, um, you know, I've been reading you for a long time, and so I think Nancy wrote to you this morning. Did you did you get her email? Yes, she did. She said okay. that you've been reading um, the Neighborhood Project plus Darwin's Cathedral. Yeah, was quite a dose. Yeah, well, and I, I you know, I I'd, I'd read Darwin's Cathedral years ago, so I, I was revisiting that, and so I really want to do um, a, a whole conversation with you, and this might. Uh, become a a program about you and um, and and your view of the world, and then the Teilhard thing is specific to a program we're doing that has some NEH funding. I've also interviewed Ursula King for that. Do you okay. know her? She's you know one of these great Teilhard Kenners, and um, so so I so what I want to do, but I want to get to Teilhard just as kind of I think you got to him in your work. Yeah, and um, and that will be its own piece, and we'll see how this experiment works. Sure. And what's our time frame? I think we have ninety minutes booked. Um, okay. And we may not go that long, but um, what we get to do is have a real conversation. We obviously will edit it down, but we do make the uh, entire conversation available online. And there are a surprising number of people who are really happy to listen to a long. <laughs> Thank heavens for that. Yes, I, mean, uh, I know. It's you know. countercultural, but it's good. <laughs> okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, is can Gregory, can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Chris is asking if you could turn down Mr. Sloan Wilson's headphones a little bit. 
Let's see how this works for everyone. Okay. Does that work for you, Chris? Can you? Okay. I talk. Um, I'm, let me say, let me tell you a little bit about the show. Okay. Sure. Good. So, so uh, it's, it's a weekly public radio program um, really about <laughs> a lot of the kinds of things that you think about. When the f- show was first launched a few years ago, it was called Speaking of Faith. Um, because it felt important to me that religion, this part of life that we call religious and spiritual, be treated with intelligence and diversity, that it, that, that the intelligence and diversity and substance that it has in life. Um, but as we got into the program, um, you know, it became a very large, spacious conversation that had lots of people joining in who were religious and non-religious. I have ended up interviewing many scientists across the years. Um, And we renamed it on being a couple of years ago to actually just as a better descriptor of what we're talking about. Not, you know, I think one of the ways religion gets hijacked, and I think you would probably agree with this from, from a different vantage point, is that it's become a matter of what people believe Mm-hmm. And I'm much more interested in how these traditions infuse lives and thinking and, you know, how we li- how we move through the world. So um, I interview people who are religious and non-religious, but, but who are either, you know, um, and my, my curiosity is about how the questions and impulses behind our spiritual and religious traditions infuse um, lives and work in many disciplines. And, and also... I think there are many evocative questions being raised, you know, in places like quantum physics by people who are not religious. But there you go. Or, you know, there's a lot of a lot of uh, amazing theological fodder in neuroscience these days. Right. But really, to me, the animating question is, you know, what does it mean to be human? And that's what we get at more and more. And obviously, well, are you one of the originators of the program? I am the originator of the program. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And obviously, this is absolutely in line with what you do. So... Can we begin? All right. I have the thumbs up. Um, and, you know, I, I would like to start. Uh, I've read, uh, deciphered what I can from your writing about your upbringing. I, I wonder, was there any kind of religious or, or spiritual background to your childhood? My parents were not religious. We come from a you know, Protestant uh, tradition, but my father, uh, who is the novelist uh, Sloan Wilson, was mm-hmm. a skeptic, and he disparaged religion for the most part. And my mom was um, would call herself agnostic. I seldom saw the inside of a church. Uh, my dad loved to ridicule uh, the more hypocritical aspects of um, of religion, and yet at the same time, uh, both were extremely moral people. So, if you think of what we associate with Christianity and the desire to uh, do unto others, basically, that was uh, very strong in my family. And uh, you can see it in my father's book: is that his characters are very intent on doing the right thing, even right. though they often fail. Right, and it it sounds like certainly what you picked up from him was was a curiosity about the human condition. That's how I look about it. And when I tell the story, I say that in the first place, I didn't want to be in his shadow, and that's why I became a scientist. But in the second place, I did inherit, um, not necessarily genetically, perhaps culturally, Mm. um, the novelistic vision of being interested in the human condition. And as soon as I saw that I could do that as a biologist, then uh, that's straight to where I went. So as a graduate student in the 1970s, you thought you were going to specialize in the study of zooplankton, right? (laughs) (laughs) Is that true? But then then you discovered evolutionary biology? Yeah, that's right. Um, 
that's what's so interesting is that evolution is this passport to the study of all subjects. And you learn that when you're a student in biology. I learned it uh, as an undergraduate, but even more as a graduate student, that I could study any species, any aspect of any species with this powerful toolkit. Hmm. And the thought that you could then enlarge that to study all aspects of the human condition was just intoxicating. So um, from the very beginning, I was uh, uh, attracted to evolution for those two reasons. You have this wonderful uh, line. You, you talk about glimpsing the full scale of, of evolutionary theory is like reading a great novel that everybody resonates. And you compare the initial stages of scientific insight to a Woody Allen movie, a good experiment <laughs> to a well-executed chess game, and the effort involved to building the Great Wall of China. <laughs> right. That's uh, that's my my uh, my attempt to. Um, Step into my father's shoes as a storyteller. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and and I also think it's important to just you know spell out that when you talk about evolution, um, you're you're talking about evolution both genetically and culturally, right? You're talking about the sweep of exp- our experience and our being. Totally, and and it's interesting that uh, that uh, that idea that there's more to evolution than genetic evolution is something that we need to establish at the beginning of our conversation. But it's something also that's that needs to be established among the professionals. Uh, what happened in the history of evolution was that in the first place, Darwin knew nothing about genes. Um, right. Darwin knew about that's Darwin a very important heredity. point to remember. Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, but then uh, evolution became very gene centric when uh-huh. we did learn about genes. So much that now most of my colleagues, actually, at least many of them, uh, when you say evolution, they think genes. Yeah. Yet when you broaden the, the view to inheritance, you realize that there's other mechanisms of inheritance. And so evolution is a, is a domain general process. Uh, it operates in many different contexts whenever there's a mechanism of inheritance. And that mechanism can be cultural in addition to genetic. Right. And 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 the other thing you point out that, that we kind of forgot in the 20th century is um, to, see, to, th- to see things holistically in general. Um, I mean, you came to a study of groups um, as adaptive units. Um, and it seems like you saw that, that uh, in 20th century intellectual life, there had, we, we had really narrowed our focus to individuals, um, and you know, I, and I also think that's not only social, scientifically, or scientifically, but you know, having grown up in on the frontier, I mean, it's very American as well. It converged with American culture, you know, the self-made man. Well, you know, there's a lot of interesting trends. It's like a tapestry of trends that need to be disentangled, and we do want to tell a careful history. It's a complex history, and we have to simplify it for the purpose of this. Uh, conversation, but to identify some of the strands, uh, one of the strands is physical reductionism, the idea that everything can be reduced to lower-level processes. Biology can be reduced to chemistry, and chemistry can be reduced to physics, and so on. Um, And that concept uh, has its own history. Then there's another trend, which is individual self-interest, the economic concept that we can explain everything as a form of uh, individual striving to to maximize their uh, self-interest. That's right. not quite the same as physical reductionism. Um, both of those became culturally dominant in the second half of the 20th century. And as to whether it was American 
Uh, in the first place, you can trace its roots way back, as you can for everything. Uh, Machiavelli, for example, would be an early proponent right. of, um, of um, individualism. But something happened in the second half of the 20th century, certainly in America, maybe in Europe as, as well, which became especially individualistic. And was it World War II? Was it, was it the Cold War? Uh, social historians need to, need, to, um, uh, need to disentangle that. And I think what's also you know, what runs through your work is that this uh, shorthand idea about evolution that we got about survival of the fittest uh, seemed to fit, seemed to mesh with that very well. Sure it did. And these themes, again, I don't want to sound too much like a dry historian, but uh, you go all the way back to uh, well, Thomas Huxley. Well, it's our Huxley. story. You know? go, yeah, there go you ahead. go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one nice thing about this show is that we do get to explore ideas yeah. in detail. So. Yeah. Um, but um, right at the beginning, we had a controversy, for example, or different views between people such as Thomas Huxley, uh, Darwin's bulldog, and uh, Peter Kropotkin, the Russian anarchist. Mm. What was it about? All about the role of cooperation and competition in evolution. And there's an amazing amount of stasis in terms of what's being debated today and what's being what was debated back then. So these are themes that are that are um, long-standing themes, although I think there's also a resolution. There is such a thing as progress, and, and we, we definitely uh, can say that we've made progress on these, on these venerable themes. Although you do point out that, that evolution is not always to be equated with progress, that progress is not inevitable. Totally. Evolution uh, um, uh, is, is not the same as progress. Evolution often takes you to where you don't want to go. Right. And, and so we have to understand the relationship between uh, major concepts such as uh, evolution, progress, morality, uh, improving the human condition. Uh, we need evolution for that, but the mapping is complex, not simple. Okay. Now, in your book, Darwin's Cathedral, you actually focused on religion as um, an organism, uh, religion, religious, religions as uh, groups and as adaptive groups. Now, did you become interested in, in groups first and then focus on religion? Or how, how did you gravitate towards that subject in particular, which I suppose was probably kind of counterintuitive maybe to some of your colleagues? Well, my career as a biologist has been centered on the question of how groups can evolve to function as adaptive units, so not humans and, and uh, not religion, but any group, social mm -hmm. insects or uh, any social uh, uh, creature. That's a fundamental uh, problem. And, uh, and maybe I can just outline the, the, the problem, which, yeah. is that, uh, which is that when we contemplate groups functioning well as groups, that involves individuals doing things for each other. And those behaviors, call them solid citizen behaviors or pro-social behaviors, are inherently vulnerable to other behaviors that um, benefit individuals at the expense of other individuals within groups. Right. That's a basic matter of trade-offs for the same reason that two tools can't do the same thing um, well. Uh, what, what it takes to, to be a solid citizen is just plain different than what it takes to be someone who maximizes your slice of the pie within a single, within a single group. And so we're faced with a puzzle or paradox of how is it that we can explain the evolution of prosociality, solid citizen behavior, when those behaviors are not locally advantageous? How can we explain how something evolves in the total population 
when those individuals are actually selectively disadvantageous within each and every group within which they occur. So that problem occurred to Darwin, and it's been a theme in sociobiology um, um, all along. And I became attracted to that problem as a graduate student and made a, made a contribution to it. Uh, and it's been my uh, main theme ever since. So what that means is that when I started to study people, and especially religion, then I was, uh, I was uh, all set up basically to study uh, those questions in, in uh, human social groups and, and uh, religion in particular. So, so this is something I I came to understand from you as as you you know explained this problem that um, and so when you say pro social behavior you're you're talking about what we might call civic behavior we might call moral rectitude <laughs> right we're, we're talking what we might call goodness or and it might translate into gentleness and humility and things that might not as you say favor people in a struggle is that. Primarily, yes. There's something about morality which is inherently uh, other and society-oriented. Uh-huh. When we talk about goodness, we're typically talking about that. I would make a small adjustment to what you said because uh, when we talk about what, what it takes for groups to be to function well as, as adaptive units, uh, sometimes that requires gentleness and humility, but sometimes it requires belligerence and warfare. Right. So uh, there's a whole panoply of ways that group, groups uh, survive as units. Some of them are just plain benign. In other words, they cause the members of the group to thrive and, and they don't harm anyone else. But in many cases, uh, these um, uh, solid citizen prosocial behaviors are only prosocial within the groups. And then the groups compete with each other and do great harm. And we, can, we always have to appreciate that two-edged sword, basically, for prosociality. And multi-level selection, the idea that this dynamic between competition and, and, um, and cooperation takes place at every level of a multi-tier hierarchy is very important for this because what it shows is, is that you can be as good as gold towards other members of your group. Right. Uh, and that group will consider their behaviors to be highly moral. And yet that group, the whole point of it will be perhaps to exterminate another group. And the people in that group see no contradiction whatsoever. So we, uh, it's good that we have a theory that lays that bare. Right. And, and also I think what you – the more subtle point that, that, I, that I just kind of grasped reading you was um, even some of those great civic virtues of the group like loyalty, trust, and self-sacrifice – uh, those goods in themselves, when turned, when when marshaled in a struggle against another group, as you say, can be very destructive. But in fact, even in that behavior, there's some kind of um, those what you might call moral virtues inside the group become um, are mobilizing or cohesive. Well, that's right, and and an important insight from evolution is that uh, until very recently, until the last few thousand years. The only human social environment was the small group social environment. Like Large tribe, social groups right? didn't didn't exist before the advent of agriculture for the most part. And so we are a species that's built and designed genetically to function in small groups. And mm. the experts are debating. This is a very hot debate right mm. now is the importance of warfare, especially in our long-term 
evolutionary history. There can be no doubt that during recorded history and, and uh, um, back uh, since the advent of agriculture that warfare has been a uh, tremendously important force. But uh, it's, it's, it's important to, in the, one, appreciate the importance of warfare and, two, <clears throat> appreciate the importance of another kind of group selection which takes place merely by groups doing well as groups without necessarily um, 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 competing with directly with, uh, with other groups. Darwin said, nature is not always red in tooth and claw. Sometimes uh, natural selection takes the form of plants competing against the desert, for example. Mm. And um, a very impo- important form of, of competition among groups is not really competition at all. It's simply some groups hanging together um, and functioning better than other groups and evolving uh, in that way. I mean, yeah, this makes me wonder how you look at how globalization, this uh, world that is the world and and human beings were interconnected in a way that's unparalleled in human history. I mean, how it is pressing on this theory or taking it to new places. Well. Uh, Culture has been taking us to new places ever since the advent – well, actually, ever since the beginning. Yeah. I think that one of the exciting um, aspects of, um, of, um, of this knowledge that's, that's building up is, is the idea that uh, um, we, we are a product of biocultural coevolution stretching way, way back. And the cultures – our cultures have been influencing our genes at least as much as our genes have been influencing our uh, culture. And what that resulted in up until the advent of agriculture was a set of instincts, basically an innate psychology, which enabled us to function well, for the most part, in small groups. Once uh, with the advent of agriculture, we then had the, the, uh, the resource means to become larger as groups. And then cultural evolution resulted in practices and beliefs. This gets us into religion, among, among other things, right. that – that interface with our innate psychology in order for societies to hang together at a larger uh, scale. And the same theory that explains the, the, uh, the early part of our history also explains the later part, including, for example, the rise and fall of empires. My good colleague and friend Peter Turchin, uh, someone you should also interview on this show, mm-hmm. applies um, multi-level cultural evolution to explain how is it is how is it that that uh, some some societies are so successful that they expand into empires and then fall apart it turns out that the same dynamic of within and between group selection is operating at that scale as it is operated at the scale of of uh, small human groups uh, throughout our history as a species hmm. so you've said that evolutionary theory can um Help explain why religion can look like uh, can look terrible and uh, wonderful at the same time. Why it can have both of these faces in the world? Can you can talk to me about that? Well, um, absolutely. And uh, I think the most important thing to say about approaching religion from an evolutionary perspective is that you can take the entire toolkit that. Uh, uh, is used in biology and apply it almost without change to the study of religion. So let me unpack what that uh, means. Okay. Uh, when a biologist such as my former self studies 
a non-human species such as a zooplankton or a particular aspect <laughs> of a zooplankton, like why do they vertically migrate? Okay, there's right. an example. Um, there's a set of major hypotheses that that we kind of run through. The first question always is, is it an adaptation? Is this thing that you're trying to study, uh, did it um, evolve by a process of selection uh, to enhance survival and reproduction or not? And Stephen Jay Gould, the, um, the late Stephen Jay Gould, was famous for stressing that there's more to evolution than adaptation. There's lots of stuff that results from evolution, which is not good for anything. It doesn't help anybody survive or reproduce. So the adaptation versus non-adaptation question is the first distinction that's made. If it's adaptive, then we need to know the unit of selection. What, so, what, uh, when you say if it's adaptive, I mean, what put that into layman's terms. What do you mean by if it's adaptive? Well, basically, it's a trait that, that facilitates ultimately reproduction, and often that requires survival. Mm-hmm. So does vertically mi- does vertical mi- do, do, do zooplankton that vertically migrate, do they have more kids, basically? Okay. <laughs> more surviving right. kids than zooplankton that don't. Yeah. Okay? And if it's true, then that accumulates in the population, and pretty soon it becomes species-typical, let us say. So why is it there? It's because it contributes to survival and reproduction. That's what it means to be adaptive. Mm-hmm. So if we look at a feature of religion, for example, let us say belief in the afterlife, and we ask, why is it there? One possibility is is that it actually historically arose at a certain time and place. It's a belief. It arose at a certain time and place. And it spread compared to other beliefs based on its contribution to survival and reproduction. If so, then it would be a cultural adaptation. If not, it could be a byproduct, and I'll get to these in a second. Um, it could, there's a number of ways to explain uh, uh, how something such as a belief can, be, uh, can, be, uh, can exist and yet uh, not contribute to survival and, and reproduction. Um, and of course, a, a, a devout religious person might say maybe belief in the afterlife uh, survived because there is an afterlife where that belief is true. And I think that's not the way you, as an evolutionary uh, uh, biologist, you're, you're, you're not even asking that question as an evolutionary biologist. But, but I also think it's interesting you say that that the evolutionary perspective gives you a sense of awe about religion. And what do you mean by that? Where does that awe come from? Well, let me take this in stages because mm-hmm. the question as to whether uh, an afterlife uh, literally exists or whether gods literally exist. And if they do, their relationship with uh, people is uh, – is, uh, Actually, at least some versions can be tested scientifically. Some people like to say that religion occupies some domain that's not accessible to, to uh, um, um, scientific uh, uh, scrutiny. Yeah. I think that that might be true for some conceptions, but for many others, uh, it's, it's, um, it's perfectly possible to test them scientifically. And that's what the rejection of creationism was all about. If you go all the way back to before... Darwin, Mm -hmm. uh, the primary belief among scientists was that uh, of special uh, creation. Uh, That led to various hypotheses, the hypothesis that the earth was young, that uh, there was a God that actively intervened in the affairs of people and 
and physical processes. Miracles literally happened. And, and the more people studied the facts of the world, the more they realized that these hypotheses simply, these statements simply were not true. And so a particular conception of God was rejected. There are other conceptions, but the particular conception was uh, rejected, not just by scientists, but even uh, scholars who study religion. So if you look at the fathers of the study of religion, people like Emil Durkheim and Max Weber and, and um, uh, those folks, they were simply trying to explain religion as a human phenomenon. They were avoiding a literal conception of uh, an intervening God as scrupulously as any biologist. And if you fast forward to the present, and if you look at the vast majority of scholars who study religion from any perspective, not evolutionary necessarily, from an economic or a sociological or a historical uh, perspective, um, almost invariably they subscribe to a position known as methodological naturalism, which means precisely that they are going to restrict their explanations to um, naturalistic phenomenon, and they're not going to invoke um, the concept of a of a um, actively intervening supernatural agent. So I'm not the only one who avoids this hypothesis. Oh, no. I have a lot of company yeah. in the in the world of religious scholarship. Well, that's right, and there's also there are ways to read those texts from which those ideas came, which is which honors them and yet doesn't um, think about them about truth as liter- literally in the same way. But again, I, mean, I want to ask you, when you say that, uh, that, being, that an evolutionary perspective gives you an awe about religion, what, what are you talking about? I think you're talking about a very different aspect of religion than necessarily what comes to mind when you use the word religion in culture right now. Well, uh, one thing that you can say about uh, let me back up. You're editing this, right? So, oh, yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah. Don't worry. Um, actually, one thing I want to make sure that we do in this conversation, uh, Krista, is to, uh, is to run through these, uh, these um, major evolutionary hypotheses. And it's against that background that I can, I can uh, explain why, why a religion might be awe-inspiring or not. So could we uh, yeah, could sure. go through okay. these? Uh, mm-hmm. So here are these six major hypotheses about religion. Uh, the first question, is it adaptive or not? Is it an adaptation that evolved by enhancing survival and reproduction? If so, what was the unit of selection? Did this evolve by virtue of benefiting whole groups compared to other groups or by virtue of benefiting individuals compared to other individuals within the same group? Or in the case of cultural evolution, we have this interesting third possibility that a cultural trait can evolve just to benefit itself without helping either individual humans or groups. That is the famous cultural parasite hypothesis um, advanced by Richard Dawkins and Daniel uh, Dennett. And it is theoretically possible that culture could be like a disease organism and something we would dread uh, or should dread (laughs) as much as the AIDS virus or the... or the um, or the um, or the flu. That is a theoretical uh, possibility. If it's not an adaptation, why does it exist? Uh, it might have been an adaptation in the past, but not the present. And we have many examples of uh, this is called evolutionary mismatch. Something that was good for us in the past, bad for us now. We wish we could be rid of it. 
And then it could be a byproduct, uh, like a moth to flame. Why do moths fly into flames? Um, obviously, it's uh, suicidal, but they have a navigation system that's based on, on um, orienting towards uh, celestial light sources. And uh, that gets subverted when the, uh, when the light source is, is um, earthly. So that's a costly byproduct, uh, not beneficial itself, but attached to something that is. And finally, it could be a process of, of drift. So I like to say that there's not one theory of religion. There's six, okay. six evolutionary theories of religion. And a lot of the debate that's taken place amongst my evolution colleagues over the last 10 years since evolutionary religious studies became a hot topic attracting a lot of attention. We all agree on that framework. That's why we're evolutionists, okay? Okay. But we disagree on which of those major hypotheses explains the phenomenon of religion. And, and whether, we're, uh, whether we're awestruck by religion, whether we regard religion as a, as a, as a wonderful thing or as a, as a terrible thing, yeah. uh, depends on a, lot, a lot on the, the verdict of what we decide, what, what, the, what the facts tell us about uh, religion. And where do you come down? <laughs> oh, you want to know the answer yeah, to Yeah, I do. I want to know your answer <laughs> to the question. Well, in the first place, religion is a fuzzy set. It consists of many, many traits. There's no single answer. And just as with biological traits, we will find examples of all categories. Later on, I'll tell you about a good candidate for um, a, uh, a religious trait that's a cultural um, um, Parasite. Okay. But uh, I think that there, there's a growing consensus among my colleagues that, for the most part, um, most enduring religions are impressively good at creating communities of people that function well as groups. In other words, the group level adaptation hypothesis is receiving a lot of support. And in many ways, we're returning to the way that. Emile Durkheim thought about uh, religion. Of course, there's many differences, um, and there were some flaws in the tradition of functionalism that that Durkheim initiated. But uh, for the most part, uh, religion is about community, and that's why it's it's possible for an atheist such as myself to be, in a sense, awestruck and inspired by religion because it is so good at forming groups of people into cooperative uh, units. I want to know how it works, even though I'm an atheist, because I would like other meaning systems to work that well, secular meaning systems to work that well. And, of course, some might. It's an empirical question. Can we find non-religious meaning systems that work as well as religious uh, meaning systems? I have a commitment to be a scientist, so therefore um, I subscribe to methodological naturalism, but I admire religions for what they for the, for the positive that they do. And, of course, uh, it's part of the whole theory that I'm also aware that there's a dark side to religion. In fact, several dark sides, as there is with all functional groups. Right. But, Composed uh, of human beings or, or other uh, creatures, absolutely. I suppose. Yeah, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one thing I thought that was interesting for you to discuss as an evolutionary, from an evolutionary perspective, something that people talk about, but it came into focus, comes into focus in a different way, I think, is this fact that their religious communities um, have transcendent teachings, right? But but also pay close attention to basic human needs and, uh, and just creating structure and order. Um, I mean, you 
you went back and looked at the way people wrote about the early Christian churches, which were such socially transformative institutions. And, you know, what people saw then was how they loved each other, how they took care of each other. And you also cite the water temple system of Bali um, as another example of this. Right. So uh, I think that uh, one of the things that amazes me about religion is that it combines the sublime and the mundane. And this is one reason why we're studying religion in the city of Binghamton, New York. In other words, as practiced in a real-world right. population. Uh, the, way that, the reason that religion sustains itself is because it makes a positive difference in the lives of real people in the context of their everyday uh, lives. And so it has to succeed at the mundane level in order to be, mis- uh, in order to be uh, sustained. And yet at the same time, there is something philosophically profound and sublime about religions. And, and typically we think about the mundane and the sublime as somehow different from each other. Mm-hmm. But they are combined in religion, and that's one reason why I'm, um, I'm so admiring of religion and thinks that it needs to be uh, emulated in our other uh, meaning systems. I'd like evolution, for example, to be sublime and mundane. <laughs> and uh, at the moment, uh, although evolution has many applications within the biological sciences, uh, it is not applied to improve the quality of our lives in most human contexts. And until it is, until it can actually, uh, until it can succeed at improving the quality of life in a mundane sense, uh, then it is it is not performing as well as a uh, as a religion, and I think that is kind of the challenge that you've taken up. Um, first of all, with your evolution for everyone uh, course at Binghamton University, but then, as you say, with this Binghamton neighborhood project. Um, but did you have a pr- moment where you came to this realization about wanting to connect this science with? life as lived. How how did this come to you? Well, I, in the first place, I think many people have an impulse to uh, do good in one way or another, and that my impulse was actually quite meager (laughs) for most of my life. Um, I was busy being a professor, and so so I was uh, acting on that impulse uh, when I when I started to study the city of Binghamton, I was also acting uh, still in scientific mode because when you're an evolutionist, you know that uh, that uh, evolution is is fundamentally about the relationship between organisms and their environments. You cannot understand the property of any species except in relation to the environment in which it evolved. Not even its present environment, but its but the environment that's responsible for the evolution of all of those. Adaptations, and so as a field biologist studying beetles and fish and and um, non-human species, I spent a lot of time in the field, and and uh, everything I did in the lab was predicated on what mm. was known about them in the field. And yet, uh, when studying humans, I realized that uh, the human-related sciences are not like that. It's not built on a foundation of field studies. And so, one reason why I decided to study my city of Binghamton. Um, was to have a field site, right. just the way I did for fish and beetles, <laughs> and that right. sounds kind of that sounds kind of cold and objective, but no, it's extremely warm-hearted. So I mean, at the same time that I was filling this this badly needed 
um, niche uh, in, uh, in a scientific sense, I was also satisfying my communitarian impulses, and I feel uh, very much enriched as a person from having, uh, from having done this. And it was interesting to me as you um, – when you start describing that project, there, there are all these pieces to it um, that uh, kind of illustrate – what what an evolutionary biological approach gives you i mean so it part of it is taking the past seriously right i mean you you tell the story of binghamton and and i think you delved into the story of binghamton in a way you hadn't before this place you came from but but again you know not necessarily the way we do it culturally where i don't know we tell our story as part of something we wear on our sleeve or we tell a story that we talk about the past as important to know so we don't repeat mistakes. But I, I see you as you tell the story of Binghamton. It's more about, you know, no, this is this all makes up who we are, right? These are these layers upon which we're built. Do, do you know what I'm saying? It's, it's a slightly different approach. Well, I sure do. And in the first place, thank you for uh, putting it that way because that's exactly what I intended. Huh. And I'm glad that it was received in at least one reader. <laughs> but... Uh, um, and I think that this very much is an evolutionary approach. Uh, uh, there's a famous uh, evolutionist called Nico Tinbergen, and he wrote a famous paper in which he, he said that there's uh, four questions that need to be answered for every trait. And one of those is the historical question. What is the history of its origin and spread? And so I actually took that question as part of my book, and I told the history as you know, in a number of ways. Uh, first of all, the history of individuals, then the history of cultures, and even the history of genes. When you think of when you think of of uh, the city of Binghamton as a population with a collection of genes yeah. that came from all around the world, and uh, Binghamton's uh, is a surprisingly diverse city for upstate New York. If I pluck a person uh, from the city of of of, um, of Binghamton, that person's ancestors could have come literally from any place in the world. And so when I talk about a person, not only do I ask where they come from, my very first question is, where did your ancestors come from? Right. And when did they arrive in North America? And how did they wash up on the shores of Binghamton, New York? And it turns out that, that, uh, that uh, the genes <laughs> are important. There's a chapter on called Our Lives, Our Genes, which look at genetic polymorphisms. Yeah. And the cultures are important. The reason we have you know, Eastern European churches, you know, Russian Orthodox churches and, and so on, is, is, is based entirely on, the, on the, the movement of people from these different places in the world. And they, they brought their genes with them and they brought their cultures with them. And right. both are in evidence on the streets of Binghamton today. It's kind of like they're the fossil layers that, that Darwin <laughs> would have looked at. And then... Um, and I, also, it's one of these. It's kind of a microcosm of of American history, right? I mean, there's a history of IBM in Binghamton, and there's a history of Joseph Smith in Binghamton. And I think you could find a lot of interesting echoes in this exercise in many, many communities. I do think of Binghamton as every city, every town. It, of course, it has its distinctive uh, uh, features, but uh, but I think that uh, I, I did. I do myself think of Binghamton as uh, uh, emblematic human population. And one thing that I discovered when I um, researched the history of Binghamton was that just about every virtue and problem that you can find any place in the world, and that includes ethnic cleansing, by the way, mm. 
uh, which occurred just after the Revolutionary War. The Revolutionary Army was directed by uh, George Washington, the father of our country, to frankly ethnically cleanse this part of the country. And, he, hmm. and Washington used the word terror in his directive. He said, you will not accept peace under any circumstances. The peace that we get will be by the terror that we, that we inflict upon the, upon the um, natives. And so hmm. what we deplore in other parts of the world uh, took place. And yet at the same time, when the pioneers uh, moved in after that episode, then there was this family-like love among families. And even even peace with the Indians is something which which surprised me. And then it went on from there, basically, with uh, with um, um, IBM and and religious movements. So, so I think of Binghamton as like a little Shakespearean uh, <laughs> stage, just as Shakespeare's play speak to the human condition. Plays uh, speak to the human condition. I think uh, the the little city of Binghamton, New York, uh, speaks to the human uh, condition. And um, um, my book is is um, um, very much operating at that level at the same time that it's operating at the level of that mundane level. That's what I mean by combining the mundane and the sublime. And I think you're also doing it with an eye to um, evolution as something which is always happening is in continuing to happen, right? Again, I, yes. clearly that's in the theory of evolution, but it's not something that um, non-scientists you know, are able to kind of keep president, present in their imaginations. There's indeed a strong association that evolution is a slow process. Uh, Darwin thought this also uh, for genetic evolution, that it took thousands of generations and that you could only um, study the product. You could not study the actual... Um, process of evolution because it was too slow. And uh, at least two things have happened to overturn that um, assumption. The first is the discovery that uh, genetic evolution is much faster than we thought. In fact, genetic evolution can take place in a single generation. And this was discovered or began to become uh, prominent uh, for the study of non-human species so roughly around the 1970s, and it's accelerated since then. And so we know now that evolution, genetic evolution, operates on ecological timescales and that we also know that this is true for our own species in addition to other species. In fact, there's pretty good evidence that genetic evolution is taking place faster now than ever before. There's a book called The 10,000-Year Explosion, which explores this this, um, Is it because of technology, the pace of technology? Well, of course, you know, uh, uh, evolution is rapid when the when there's a big mismatch between between the uh, uh, environment and the and the current uh, population, and we're always changing our environment so much that we're that we're creating constant mismatch. Mismatch. We're creating constant mismatch. Uh And and this is true for our psychological traits. Uh, in my in the neighborhood project, I review a study which demonstrates. I, I won't go through the details here, but actually demonstrates that selection is operating on different psychological traits in different parts of the world uh, more strongly than any other category of traits, even our immune system. So this is a <laughs> it's a it's a, um, amazing. Um, uh, discoveries that are that are that are taking place. All of this just for genetic evolution. Right. But then, when we when we begin to think about culture as an evolutionary process, 
and also psychological change, individual psychological change is also an evolutionary process. So each and every one of us is an evolving system in its own right. And so these non-genetic evolutionary processes, of course, they're faster still. And so that's why uh, evolution, uh, as I say in my book, uh, we haven't escaped the orbit of evolution. We're experiencing evolution at warp speed. And Teilhard de Chardin is a figure who was writing perhaps presciently, (laughs) I think his fans might say, um, in the last century, uh, who you discovered in the midst of this experiment. Right now, when did you start the Binghamton Neighborhood Project was it is in the 2000s? Uh, 2006. Okay. And then the year of Darwin 2009 came along. I noticed that your wife started calling you your Darwinness <laughs> <laughs> because you were speaking all over the place. And as I read it, you discovered Teilhard in preparation for a Vatican conference. I mean, tell me, did you not had you not heard of him before? And, oh, uh, of course I'd heard of him. So yeah. Thiel, uh, uh, Pierre Thiel de Chardin is a famous figure. Uh, most people who uh, become evolutionists have heard of him. Uh-huh. Um, but have they read him? Uh, would they regard his ideas of, as current? Uh, the answer to those questions are for the most part um, no. So of course I had known about uh, um, Thiel Hard, but uh, I, I felt the need to read him uh, more closely during the year of Darwin in preparation for this conference at the um, um, at the Vatican, because of course uh, Teilhard was a um, was a um, uh, a Jesuit priest yeah. at a time when when being a priest and a scientist was not so unusual. So he was simultaneously a Jesuit priest and a world famous uh, uh, anthropologist, paleontologist who discovered, was involved in the discovery of one of the first hominid fossils, which at that point was known as Peking Man. So right. at that time, he was very highly respected by, as a scientist, and he was read by, by um, evolutionists for sure. And did you uh, know but, him primarily as an evolutionist? Did, had you, did you know of his spiritual writings as well? Well, what I knew, uh, I knew a little about him before I, I read him closely. And what mm-hmm. I knew is that the reason that he was continued to be read was not because of his scientific contributions, but because of the spiritual quality of his work, and especially his most famous book, The Phenomenon of Man. Yeah. Uh, what he had done there was create some kind of, 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 of um, body of thought, which he claimed was 100% scientific, and yet at the same time had the same spiritual quality of Christianity, and he never he never left Christianity. He remained an obedient uh, uh, priest to the end, and that included um, obeying the the Church, the Vatican, who refused his work to be yeah, published, published his, right? his spiritual writings um, yeah. until after his until after his death. And so, and so, the amazing thing about uh, what Teilhard was trying to say was that he had a a system of beliefs that was one hundred percent scientific and yet still had the spiritual quality of a religion and that would be quite the accomplishment if true yeah what what captured you i mean what spoke to you in his writings in terms of the work you were doing and the life you were leading 100 years later 
Well, what I discovered to my uh, amazement, really, was that uh, there was that Teilhard was ahead of his time scientifically, that much of what he was saying actually passed muster from a modern evolutionary uh, perspective. And the main thing he said, which is only now becoming back into vogue, is mm. that in one sense, the origin of man was just another species. We were just another primate. But in another sense, we were an entirely new evolutionary process. And that made us, in some ways, as significant as the evolution of life. <laughs> and so you can begin to see the spiritual quality of of, uh, of Teilhard. And, and what that, to translate that into modern terms, um, uh, what that means is, is that uh, with, with, with humans, the, our capacity for symbolic thought and the, the, um, and symbolic thought as an evolutionary process is something that began for the most part with humans. And so, so, Symbolic thought as a, a mechanism of inheritance and the enormous diversity of what we do as cultures, um, as an evolutionary process, it really is a new evolutionary process. Teilhard was correct about that, and that amazed me. You know, I would love to read um, the definition you gave of the noosphere in, in your book um, about the Neighborhood Project, because... Even having reread Teilhard and talked to you know Ursula King, who's a great expert on him, I, I think it's a complex concept, but I, I feel like you did justice to it. So I'm going to read this. Um, you mentioned that the word biosphere had already been coined to describe the influence of life on Earth, and Teilhard adopted the term with pleasure. Now for Teilhard's own contribution. He asks the reader to imagine excavating layers of soil. Deep down, there is only the physical Earth. Closer to the surface, organic materials begin to appear. Then, still closer to the surface, human artifacts start to appear. At first, they are barely present, such as flakes of stones chipped from rocks to make tools. Then they become more abundant. In the immensity of space and time, the artifacts of human activity spread over the surface, surface of the planet and form a kind of skin, like the skin of life that preceded it. A word is needed for this human skin, the noosphere. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but but also I'm not even sure in in that paragraph what the, what you're saying also is it's not just our artifacts it's our it's our it's thought entering the equation of evolution, right? It's thought and and uh, of course that's what uh, what uh, Teilhard said is both the physical and the and the um and the mental and by thought of course he meant many things. There's not a one-to-one -one translation here, but right, I think right. the the salient part is the fact of, of the phenomenon of symbolic Thought and let me try to explain what is, how a symbol differs from other kinds of of, uh, of learning. Uh, you can train a rat or a pigeon to associate um, um, a certain sound with uh, a certain food, and as long as those two things are paired with each other in the environment, then that mental association will exist in the mind of the rat or the uh, pigeon. Uh, what makes a symbol uh, different? is that a symbol is a mental representation that exists without the environmental association. And so we can have these imaginary worlds 
inhabited by all sorts of things and relationships among them. And that imaginary world does not correspond to what's out there, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, at first thought, you might say, what good would such a thing be? <laughs> right. I mean, why would anyone want an association to believe in something that wasn't out there? And, and, and yet, every imaginary world that we dream up does have a connection to the real world in terms of what it causes us to do. Hmm. There will always be that connection. So there is a connection between uh, any given symbolic system, which I've come to call um, calling a symbotype by comparison to a genotype. You're acting like him, aren't you? Making up what words. Making up I don't words. do it often, but the symbotype <laughs> was actually uh, okay. was an important um, uh. one, to, uh, one to create. There's a symbotype-phenotype relationship hmm which is like the genotype-phenotype relationship. And symbotypes, like genotypes, are extraordinarily diverse. You know, if there's 10 genes that are each polymorphic with two alleles, then there is 2 to the 10th different combinations. And that's why there's an infinite variety, a nearly infinite variety of genotypes in a sexually reproducing population. Well, the same thing is true for symbotypes. The combinatorial diversity of symbotypes is nearly infinite, and every one has a corresponding effect on the phenotype. And so what that means is, is that, is that uh, cultural evolution of, of, uh, with symbolic thought as the inheritance mechanism can produce this field of behaviors that enables humans to adapt to um, certainly all Environments. That's why we fled over the, uh, why we spread over the planet, and hundreds of ecological niches put us humans in a new environment, and we'll adapt, but only because we have this flexible system of symbolic thought that enables us to uh, adapt. That's why it's it it that it, it qualifies as a as a new evolutionary process, and why we became um, the dominant species on Earth. For better or for worse. Hmm. And there's a lot of worse in there. Right. This is another case in which evolution doesn't necessarily equal progress. We could evolve to extinction this way. Right. And you feel like this may be something that that T.R. got wrong or that his view was too optimistic? Well, first, let me tell you another thing that he got right and then mm-hmm. and then the one mm-hmm. thing that he got uh, wrong. Another thing he talked about was that uh, – uh, he ta- he called them grains of thought, and and uh, what he meant by that is that at first, of course, humans existed in tiny groups, and they each had their separate right. uh, symbolic systems, and which were disconnected to each other. And then he imagined these grains of thought coalescing, and that corresponds to increasing the scale of society. Indeed, that has happened. And then he thought that this would result in a single global consciousness that he called the omega point. Right. The the process of evolution reflecting on itself. <laughs> and this is the now it is true that we have the increasing scale of society all the way to the mega societies of uh today. Uh, but the idea that this was going to result in a single global brain, Mm -hmm. and especially that there is some inevitability about this, is what's uh, uh, not quite right. It could happen. It's within the realm of possibilities, but it is by no means certain. There is such a thing as collapse. 
Um, <laughs> and so uh, it's worse than – it's less optimistic than Teilhard um, um, uh, thought. And I think one of the reasons that his, his uh, work does have the spiritual quality is because of the idea that there's an omega point and we're going towards the omega point. I think the real situation is that, uh, uh, yes, there's an omega point, but we have to work real hard to get there. Right. And if we don't get there, then, it's, then, uh, then uh, woe is us. So he, he, he said that evolution proceeds towards spirit, right? I mean, he was really imagining, imagining as I read him, a kind of evolution of conscious that would be far beyond where we are now. Um, I mean, when I, I think one, one of the things that makes it seem more realistic to me, if you will, is the sense of time he had. I mean, if I think of him looking at the Peking man fossil um, and seeing how primitive that seemed to us now, I mean, my sense is he might look at us spiritually even now, I mean, just a few generations after him, and still see us as very, as not there yet, still still having a long way to go, as you say. But I guess you're also saying along the way we might extinguish ourselves. <laughs> well, one of the, I mean, amazing things about uh, Tjellhard was that he survived so much tragedy. Yeah. Uh, in his life and horror in his life. He was a stretcher bearer in World War I. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> what was I'm, that? I'm, I'm sorry, I've got to interrupt. Our microphone has drifted, and so uh, David is a little bit off mic. I do need to, to fix that. I'll be right okay. back with okay. you. Okay. <clears throat> Hopefully the quality of our sound has been okay. Well, it sounds good to me. I think, we're, Chris, across, we're okay in here, so. We want to mm-hmm. start the answer to that question again. Okay. I'm so sorry. Oh, I see. As long as it sounded okay, but then it began to not sound okay. Okay. Oh, okay. Chris is saying it just a second ago. It started to drift. Okay. All right. Okay. Can you remind me what my question was? Oh, so we're talking uh, one of the most amazing things about Chilhart, and I'll I'll repeat that. Yeah. Okay. It was sorry. They they're wanting me to repeat the question a little bit. Was I? Okay. Go ahead. What? Oh, right. Right. Yeah. So, so he really um, imagined that we would be spirit evolve. There, there would be an evolution of spirit and consciousness that would be where where we are not now. And um, and I, but I think what you're adding to that is, given the, the long way we have to go and the um, possibilities of things going wrong. Um, we could extinguish ourselves before we get to that point, which is not really a possibility he considered. Right. Well, one of the there's there's what Teilhard thought, and then there's what we should be thinking. Uh, and one of the most amazing things about Teilhard is the what he experienced during his lifetime, including World War One, as a stretcher bearer. Right. So he experienced more horror than any of us have, uh, or most of us have, anyhow. And yet he remained so optimistic and positive uh, spiritually. He had this uncomfortable relationship with the church, you know, the Vatican suppressing him and banishing him to right. China and depriving him of all sorts of awards that he, that he could have gotten. He bore all of that and still managed to think of Christianity, even though he referred to the Vatican as stroking the whiskers of the tiger. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he also thought of Christianity primarily as Christian love. Yeah. And as as a as the leading edge, basically of of 
a, a belief system that was capable of uniting people from all walks of life based upon um, love. Now, if you think about the advance of this, uh, again, we don't want to think of this as progress, and that's the one error of his thought was to think that there was any kind of inevitability about um, about this. Yeah. I don't think we're any more spiritually advanced today than during Teilhard's time. I think in some ways we've gone backwards for the uh, um, for the uh, uh, most part. And when we think of what it means for spirituality to be the leading edge of evolution, this takes us back once again to one of the uh, admirable aspects of of religion. And that's the transcendent aspect, the idea that when you're religious that the future can be different from the past, uh, that there can be such a thing as enlightenment, that individuals can tra- transform, they can metamorphose, uh, and so also can uh, cultures. That is a optimistic vision of cultural evolution, basically, because cultural evolution is change. Right. And religions often envision change better than various secular belief systems, including those, for example, that are so gene-centric that if you're a certain way, it's because you have certain genes and that can't change, so it sucks for you. That's a a pretty common secular belief system, which is quite impoverished in its ability to imagine positive change. Right, and and again, as as you point out a minute ago, Ideas like that that are transcendent and transformative do – ideas like that that are transcendent, that that imagine a different world and a different future can have transformative force because of how they motivate people to act. Yeah, absolutely. That's why spirituality is uh, something that needs to be defined and understood independently of religion. Hmm. And, of course, the world is full of people who say that they're spiritual, not religious, and vice versa. So we need to understand what spirituality means, what words such as spirit and soul uh, actually mean and why we're impelled to use them in everyday life. And when we do that, I think we can come up with a very satisfying meaning for them, uh, which need not require a belief in supernatural agents. And so we can speak frankly about having a soul, and even our groups having a soul, our cities having a soul, and even the planet having a soul. Hmm. That's not, I mean, that actually has, um, can have a straightforward meaning. So, so let me, and I, and I do think maybe in that sense, and this is, this is not a reflection on the worth of the idea, in that sense, I think you do diverge from Teilhard, at least the way he was in his time, because his, I mean, he talked about the cosmic Christ, right? I mean, it was very, specific devotional um, uh, language and, and symbolism associated for him with with this future. But but tell me how you, um, you know, how would you define s- spirituality? And let's say, how would you define, this is a question I get asked a lot, how would you define the difference between spirituality and religion, how you see those two things? Well, to say just a bit more about Teilhard, yeah. uh, yes, he did use the imagery of of, uh, of Christ. He ended his book by saying that uh, even for a mere biologist, it's uh, nothing less than the way of the cross, I think, something along, um, along uh, those lines. And yet, in his scientific worldview, including the origin of life and the origin of man, uh, he never invokes a vital spark, a divine 
spark. Mm-hmm. And so he's actually true to his statement that his account of of the origin of life and the origin of man is uh, is one hundred percent. Uh, naturalistic. He was not at all tempted, uh, and this is in contrast to the Catholic uh, Church. Why the Catholic Church still could not come to terms with his his beliefs. Um, um, never did he invoke a divine uh, uh, spark, mm-hmm. uh, despite the fact that he did talk in terms of Christian uh, in Christian uh, imagery. Uh, when we reflect upon uh, what it means to be spiritual and the difference between. Um, spirituality and uh, religion. I think that religion has an organizational aspect that spirituality does uh, not. So spirituality, I think, is more of a vision for the way life can be that we can work towards, but there's nothing much organizational about spirituality. Uh, Religions are in large part, organizations. And that's why it's possible to be religious and not spiritual. And there's pe- people who say, I'm not spiritual, but I'm very religious. Yeah. And they, they, they love the system of practices and, and, um, and, and beliefs and, and, and so on. So, and the community. I mean, that's, that's, and, and, of course, the community, mm-hmm. although spirituality is about community um, um, too. Mm-hmm. Any major word is diverse, by the way. I've actually studied major words such as altruism and selfishness. And what you find is is that there's a diversity of, of, um, of, um, of meanings, which actually you can study hmm. the diversity of meanings as different species of thought. That's a different... This is linguistic biodiversity. Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, I'm telling you, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, an, it's another um, awesome topic. And okay. so, yes, there's people that have a kind of a self-centered form of spirituality, they regard themselves as spiritual and they don't lift a finger for anyone and it's not even much part of their spirituality to, to do so. But I think the most powerful and the major forms of spirituality um, are, like morality itself, uh, inherently other and society-oriented. They imagine something which is going to be good for all of us over the long term. It's hard to imagine someone that we regard as self-centered and concerned only about feathering their own nest, who also qualifies as spiritual. So I, I want to spend um, the rest of the time we have really, really talking some more about the Binghamton, Binghamton Neighborhood Project. And I don't know, I might call your applied evolutionary biology. Um, Great. Let me just ask you this one question but before we turn from Teilhard. I mean, if I ask you specifically like how you see what you got from him, his ideas or, you know, the noosphere, how you see that idea kind of manifest, affirmed or challenged in the experiment that is this neighborhood project you're working on or other things you're working on these days? Well, it's, uh, it's um, you know, another person I identified with is, uh, is John Calvin. Yes. <laughs> and uh, who I learned when I wrote about when I wrote Darwin's Cathedral. And I actually identify very strongly with him because after all, he tried to organize the city of Geneva. Yes. And I'm trying to organize the city of, of, um, of, um, of Binghamton. And I think that, that uh, it's very much for me a matter of managing the cultural evolutionary uh, process, basically knowing what I do about evolution. How can we structure our social life 
in order to basically stack the deck in favor of mm-hmm. prosociality. How can we cause things? How can we make it so that so that um, uh, prosociality wins the Darwinian contest? And how can we cause a human population such as a city to function well at the scale that it must? Um, so. Binghamton's a small city, merely actually a little less than 50,000 people. How can you get a population of 50,000 people to function adaptively? That's quite the challenge. And not many cities do it well. Right. And so what can we do and how can we use our evolutionary toolkit in order to cause a city to function well as a unit? And of course, that requires everything below the level of a city, the neighborhoods, the groups, the churches, the groups of all sorts, the schools, the businesses all have to function well in order for the city to function well. And then there must be coordination among those groups. And is an idea like the noosphere, is it, is it beyond um, where you are now? Or is it, is it one of these thoughts that can help, I don't know, mobilize, speed things along? Well, I don't, I don't uh, actually employ the concept of the noosphere uh, much at all in my work. One reason for that is that the noosphere is just refers to any human activity. It could be good or bad. Right, okay. Uh, when, when we talked about that skin mm-hmm. uh, spreading over the globe, that skin could be asphalt and it could be good for nobody. In fact, probably not right to call it a skin because it's not protecting anything. It's just screwing up the, right. uh, screwing up the environment. So the human, human activity, that's something we're always going to have. Uh, the, the question is, is how do we, how do we uh, manage it so for our long-term sustainability? Um, so you've said about the, the Binghamton Neighborhood Project that it's become your anchor to reality. Um, I, I'd like to understand <laughs> that, and I'd also like to understand what it's taught you about evolution that maybe you didn't know before or that you now know differently. Well, when you're an academic, you know, they, they, they call it an ivory tower for a reason. Um, you can have your theories and think your thoughts, and there'll be no corrective, basically. I mean, obviously, there's the corrective of empirical science, but uh, I could have spent my life talking about the evolution of cooperation and prosociality um, without ever knowing if it could work in the real world. And, and uh, the Binghamton Neighborhood Project is my anchor to reality because I'm working with, with real people, real groups, and I tell you, it's humbling. <laughs> so you know they they uh, it, it's just it's just humbling. So and I think that's a good thing basically to to um, it's the ultimate crucible for for testing your um, for testing um, your your ideas. Um, you know one of the again this is another thing that you point out that just makes logical sense, but it's a thought that I hadn't quite conceptualized before. You know you say cities decay like other organisms, and Binghamton. As you said before, is a place that's like many places and uh, has some of the same issues now that many American cities are struggling with, unemployment, um, an industrial base that's shifted. Um, you say cities decay like other organisms and also that people take their cues from environments and that they behave in disorderly ways when they're in a disorderly environment. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and uh, there's a lot of science which is showing that, uh, that um, our instincts for what we do um, are largely subconscious. So our conscious decisions about how to behave are the tip of an iceberg of, of um, decisions that take place below the, the um, surface of, uh, 
of uh, consciousness. Let me describe an experiment, not my own, but one of the a wonderful experiment which involved a um, a, um, a mailbox and a letter stuck halfway into a mailbox as if someone had tried to put it in and hadn't gone all the way in. And it's clear that this uh, envelope has a little bit of money in it. And so uh, the passers-by, the question is whether they do the right thing and and uh, put it into the mailbox or whether they do the wrong thing and, and take it out. And, and the experimental manipulation was whether it was a a kind of a littered environment with uh, hmm. litter and graffiti and stuff like that, or whether it was a clean environment. And that difference made the difference in the behavior of the passerby. The very same person, depending upon the cues provided by the environment, hmm. would either be behave prosocially or, or, um, or not. And we've done experiments uh, where we show college students who don't know much about the city of Binghamton uh, photographs of the neighborhoods and we ask them to rate the neighborhoods, and then we check that against the opinions of the actual neighbors, and there's a, a good correlation so that you can tell a lot from a photograph. Hmm. And then we actually have these college students play a cooperation game with someone from the neighborhood whose photograph they are viewing. And what we discover is is that if it's a nice-looking neighborhood, then the college student is in a cooperative mood. And if it's not a nice-looking neighborhood, then the college student is in a is in an uncooperative mood. And all of this takes place um, um, basically instantaneously. That's the degree, degree to which we respond to our um, environment. And, of course, knowing that, there's much that you can do to improve human behavior right, just nearly, nearly by changing the cues of the environment. And I guess that helps explain this other observation that really struck me, that children growing up in high and low-quality neighborhoods experience, as you said, different faces of human nature. And you're, you're saying yeah. that that's a way people res- people are responding to the environment, all, uh, even subconsciously, not even realizing how they're presenting, comporting themselves. Well, and there's there's actually um, um, several aspects to that, and some of them are quite unexpected. So one aspect is is that if you live in a tough neighborhood, and especially if you have a tough persona, then that's automatically going to be mirrored back by the people. Before the first interaction, that's going to be mirrored back. So it's truly the case that someone standing in a tough neighborhood or with a tough persona is going to be experiencing a different human nature than someone standing in a good neighborhood Hmm. or with a more friendly um, Hmm. uh, persona. They will see a different face of, of human nature. Something a little less expected is that what we found, and there's a lot of other uh, research to support it, is that where you find the most cooperative people is not in the most wealthy neighborhoods, right? But in the but in the low income neighborhoods where people actually have to cooperate in the context of their everyday lives, and so and so uh, in some of the more wealthy neighborhoods, because people have so much money, they don't need to cooperate. And so they don't, right. <laughs> and they and they're not even in practice. So, like, if you if you give them an option to cooperate or not in a in a game like setting, well, they don't. So so we get pro sociality. Basically, there's it's not about it's not all about money, right? And also, I just wanted to, you know what's important there too is you don't equate. You can have a high quality neighborhood that does not have a high median income, right? So. So, so, so you don't necessarily equate those things. So, I think somewhere you said the kids who are most cooperative tend to come from neighbors that are high in quality and low in median income. 
Uh, exactly right. Exactly right. And this is also true worldwide. One of the great messages here is that uh, these, this all of everything we've been talking about replicates at all social scales. So there is famous research that's been done on small-scale societies around the world. I should say different cultures around the world, seeing how cooperative they are and employing some of these clever games invented by economists, such as the ultimatum game and the prisoner's dilemma, to uh, to as a kind of a, a barometer, basically, for how cooperative uh, people are. And, and what was discovered on a worldwide basis is that there's huge variation in cooperativity, and that variation can be explained, basically, by how cooperative these cultures are in the context of their everyday lives. And Mm -hmm. so a culture where people have to hunt whales, for example, and that's extremely cooperative, Mm -hmm. is going to cooperate in this game-like setting much more than a culture in which uh, they just – families practice slash-and-burn agriculture and don't really cooperate outside the context Mm -hmm. of the the family. And so uh, we've discovered that all of that also happens – uh, among neighborhoods within the city of Binghamton. So the worldwide pattern replicates itself on a neighborhood basis. Um, what, what else? What else has surprised you that you might not have guessed about a city as an organism? Well, I'm oddly, I'm surprised that some of what we're doing is working. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Because you're and a skeptical because, scientist. <laughs> well, with, when you know when you have a theory, um, it's always conjectural. Yeah. And to confirm, to have your theory confirmed, is a joy. I mean, there could be no greater pleasure for a scientist than to have your theory uh, confirmed. When uh, the astronomers found that light indeed bended around the sun. Um, that was a great confirmation of Einstein's theory of uh, of, um, of of relativity. Uh, the confirmation of my theories are much more um, modest, and what that means is is that we can confront a, a real world situation, such as a, a school program for at risk students, or a or a disadvantaged neighborhood, or um, these sorts of problems, and we could devise a solution, which is what everyone's trying to do. Mm-hmm. Basically, we're just bringing a different toolkit to the policy table. And in every other respect, we're like anyone else who's trying to make a difference, uh, trying to come up with new solutions. We want to sit at the table with our um, evolutionary toolkit. And if we can devise a plan, and for that plan to work is a, a huge thrill and a surprise in a sense. And I feel lucky to have had some uh, surprises and and it, to the point where it becomes intuitive and in retrospect you look back and you say well of course this would work why hmm. wouldn't this work <laughs> so give me an example give me an example of a situation to which you applied this evolutionary toolkit and you are pleased with the results there is the, the my favorite example is the one that's best documented because a part of this is that in order to do this well you have to you have to um, do state-of-the-art assessment so that you have to be able to, not only does it have to work, but you have to prove that it works in a sense. Mm -hmm. And that can be very difficult in a real-world setting. So our biggest biggest success story is the Regents Academy, which is a program for at-risk high school students that I was asked to advise. And 
So this is a program for kids that are almost certainly going to uh, drop out of school. Uh, to get into the program, they had to have flunked at least three courses in their previous year. And we uh, designed this program with the help of the principal and, and teachers to, as I said earlier, to stack the deck in favor of prosociality. And uh, I won't try to – this is published research, I, I'll uh, – um, so I won't go through all of the all of the uh, of details, but uh, we created a very highly prosocial environment and a good learning environment. So what, is, what, so what does that look like? So creating a highly prosocial prosocial environment. What is what are the, some of the components of that? Okay, um, the there is a. Uh, let me gather my thoughts. Uh, okay, let me just ask: Can we go over a few minutes um, if we because we're covering a lot of ground. Do you, yes, are you all right? Your people. Uh, no problem here. We're okay here. Okay, good. All right. Okay. So <laughs> I want you to have time to collect your thoughts and then speak mm-hmm. them. So we have been able to uh, derive a list of design features that cause just about any group to function well, including a school group. And this is based uh, – a lot on the work of Eleanor Ostrom, who won the Nobel Prize in economics in 2009. And her contribution was to show how groups of people attempting to manage their common uh, resources, uh, such as uh, farmers or fishermen or forestry uh, people managing forests, how they're capable of managing their affairs uh, pretty well, but only if certain conditions are uh, met. And those conditions are very conciliant with what we know from an evolutionary perspective about prosociality and, and cooperation. So I'm going to reel off yeah, yeah. Uh, eight design features, and then I'm going to add a couple of extra things to show you how we created a school program uh, that uh, works. Now, as I'm listing these ingredients, uh, ask yourself the question, how well does the typical school satisfy these Ingredients embody these design features, okay. especially from the perspective of, of an at-risk student. Okay. Okay? Mm-hmm. okay. Ingredient number one: there has to be a strong group identity and a sense of purpose for the mm-hmm. group. So mm-hmm. a person has to think that they're a member of a group, and that group has to be a purpose that's clear to um, everyone. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two: a proportional costs and benefits. It cannot be the case that some people do all the work and some people get all the benefits. There has to be some sense in which the benefits are scaled to what you do for the um, group. Hmm. Okay? Number three, consensus decision-making. People hate being bossed around and told what to do, but they'll work hard to implement a consensus decision. And right there, ask yourself what the average at-risk kid thinks about Hmm. whether they're being consulted about what they do in uh, school. Number four, monitoring. Um, most people are cooperative, but some people will misbehave, and unless you can monitor that, then the group will not function well. Number five, graduated sanctions. If someone does misbehave, you don't bring the hammer down immediately. You hmm. correct them in a nice, friendly fashion, but you also must be prepared to escalate. Okay. Uh, number six, um, confl- fast, fair conflict resolution. If there is a conflict, it must be uh, resolved quickly and in a manner that's regarded as fair by all um, uh, parties. Uh, number, se- uh, number seven, local autonomy. In order for the group to do the previous things, 
They must have the ability to make their own decisions and to organize their group um, their way in order to make those decisions. And there's another thing. If you look at the average school program, not only are the uh, uh, students not allowed to alter the routine, but even the teachers are not allowed to. Right. All, right. Even when they know it's not, and the students are aware that the teachers are not allowed to alter the routine. <laughs> yeah. So, so, and number finally, number eight is uh, is uh, called polycentric governance. When when groups are nested within larger groups, then there must be coordination among groups, which mirrors the same uh, principles. Now, there's two more principles that we added to this school group. Um, the first was was um, a safe and secure environment. Fear is good for uh, helping you escape from the fearful situation over the short term. It's toxic over the long term. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, if you don't feel safe and secure, if you're not basically in a playful, relaxed mood, uh, you're not going to do the kind of learning that you need to, um, that you need to do. And finally, um, for, uh, learning in any species does not take place when all of the costs are in the present and all the benefits are in the future. Hmm. So if you tell someone uh, you'll get a good job if you slogged right. four years through school. Right. Or you'll get into and, college four years from now. Yeah. So there's a, yeah. a wonderful study by the psychologist uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who's best known for his uh, work on flow, peak psychological experience. And in this study, um, he followed, he and his team followed a group of gifted high school students that were identified as gifted in the ninth grade, followed them through their high school and asked how many of them remained gifted by the 12th grade. And what he discovered was, and the main factor was, only the kids that enjoyed what they were doing on a day-to-day -day basis fulfilled their talents. And so even mm -hmm. the gifted kids had to have this short-term reward for what they were doing in order to realize the long-term reward. And so if school isn't fun and something you want to go to on a day-to-day -day basis, then forget about it. Right. Now, yeah. having, having listed these ingredients and compared them to the average school experience, you can see how deficient many school environments are, especially from the perspective of an at-risk uh, student. But... But it's true that you're coming at it from a completely different perspective because you are focusing on the environment, right? I mean, you didn't mention self-esteem or teacher-student ratio, right? I mean, the the way you're starting your deliberation. Well, that's a from such a different on, direction. That's a perceptive point on your part. Uh, although those things enter in, so yeah, for example, well, right, they'd be implied, but. Right, but you're not starting there. You're you're getting there through creating the environment to create those things. Right? Yeah, and um, you know, th thank you for making that that point. What it underscores is the fact that evolution is fundamentally about the relationship between the organism and the environment. The organism, including you and me, are fundamentally reflections hmm. of our environment. That sounds environmental, and is and and it is. And yet, you can make that statement more powerfully as an evolutionist than in any other, in any other uh, way. As it turns out, in order to implement these things, um, it did need a pretty good student-teacher ratio. Yeah. So that was important. And uh, lots of love was required for that safe and secure environment. So uh, these kids have had very tough lives. It breaks your heart to hear some of their, some of their uh, stories.
And so one of the things they needed most was just old-fashioned TLC. Yeah, right. And that's what, that's what caused them to be unfearful and to become relaxed and playful in the school environment, despite the fact that the rest of their lives were uh, harsh. And so we set this, we created this environment, and uh, during its first year, it just worked spectacularly well. And I was, uh, I was surprised and delighted. Surprised, even though it was what we intended, but uh, but uh, had to be one of the greatest thrills in my professional career. Hmm. You know, what you just said a minute ago about it, it ends up needing old-fashioned TLC, I mean, that's also something that runs through your reflection on this. You, you know, one, in pl- one place you write, I don't claim to have a fix for every problem, but some solutions, such as breastfeeding and welcoming nature back into our cities, are no-brainers. When you view them from an evolutionary perspective, we merely need to do what is manifestly good for us. And, you know, I hear a lot of stories that resonate with that in my work. I mean, we took a trip to Detroit this year, and part of what people who are doing who are rebuilding lives and neighborhoods there is rediscovering things they'd forgotten, like growing your own food and knowing what you're eating. And this, I just wonder, though, as as an evolutionary, from an evolutionary perspective, this act of rediscovering what we used to know and forgot would look like a backward step from the outside. Oh, I wouldn't call it a backward step. So, there is such a thing as a backward step. Yeah. And, so what is it if it's not a backward step? Well, life is complex, and there's all kinds of ways that you can uh, simplify in the wrong way. Uh, it is not the case that we want to go back to nature in every respect. We don't mm-hmm. want to wear loincloths. Uh, we like our modern... Um, medicine. That's not the um, point. Uh, There are some aspects of our uh, of our minds that are sufficiently adapted to certain environments that if you remove the elements of those environments, then uh, we're not going to adapt. We will be permanently mm. stressed. So we do and things so, that stop uh, evol- pro- progre- evolution as progress and that we have to restore those environments to keep growing? Well, we create – we inadvertently uh, uh, create environments that are like a fish out of water. Mm. So if you put a fish out of water, there it is on land, flopping around. It's going right. to die soon. Put it back in the water. That's not regressive. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, that's really <laughs> And so I think that what we do when we try to reassemble small groups, when we put nature back in what cities. you say, recreating ancestral environments. Then this is basically putting the fish back in water. Huh. And, and uh, that's not regressive. So Yeah. Oh, this is really interesting. Um, I think I want to ask you this. Well, let me just ask you one more question about Tayar. Um, so I get it that you're not, you know, preaching the noosphere in your in your meetings for the Binghamton Binghamton Neighborhood Project. But it, it seems to me that one of the points he was making was that spirit, as he envisioned it, the spirit that evolution is driving towards, um, is about energizing for action. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't spirituality as a state of, you know, comfort. It was. It was about being able to galvanize for something to work for, as you say, to work for right. um, what the good, the greater good. And in that sense, you know, when I look at what you're doing, um, 
it kind of seems to me that his thinking is having that effect for you or supporting you in in that movement. It uh, definitely is, and it and it um, uh, the, the way to state that in modern evolutionary terms is that uh, evolution only sees action. Whatever goes mm-hmm. on in the head mm-hmm. right. is invisible to evolution, and unless it it is manifested in terms of what people. Um, what people do. And so if what's inside your head, if your meaning system does not cause you to act in the right way, then it is not very good as a, as a, um, a meaning system. That's another thing that's admirable about uh, a good religion is that it's so powerfully motivating. Yeah. It gets you out of bed in the morning. And that's not restricted to religions. I, I shoot out of bed in the morning too. So it's something the way I think <laughs> causes me to be uh, at least as motivated as the average religious zealot. So, uh, <laughs> But we want a meaning system that causes us to um, be highly motivated to act and, of course, to do the right thing. And in modern life, that needs to be um, a meaning system that is uh, highly respectful of the facts of the, of the world. We need, to, we need to have a body of knowledge that we call factual, and we need to respect that body of knowledge um, more than ever before. And then we also need to have values that we're more aware of than ever before, and we must then use those values to consult those facts in order to plan our actions, basically, in, an, in, a, in a world that's uh, um, increasingly complex and which requires management at a planetary uh, uh, scale. Would you want to say anything else about Teilhard de Chardin before we? Oh, I think we said plenty about okay. good old Teilhard. Okay. Well, then I want to ask you this question. Um, so I once um, was with the, talking to um, uh, he's a geneticist who is also an Anglican priest, so a, a scientist and also a, a religious person. Um, he talked about. This, he said, he, well, one of the things he said that was he, he thought of the creeds of the church as like the operational hypotheses in his laboratory, you know, just the best we've been able to do. Um, he, he said that he sees the spirituality of a scientist as something like the spirituality of a mystic, which is always seeking to discern truth and to know what one can know and then always knowing that there's much more to discover. Um, I wonder how you from your life, your way of seeing the world, and your work as an evolutionary biologist, if, if you would think about, if you had to define the spirituality of a scientist, how you might describe that? Well, I agree with that person, and I actually enjoy thinking of science as like a religion hmm. that worships truth as its um, God. Hmm. And I think that there's two aspects of that. The one that you're... Um, person you described focuses on is like an individual aspect uh, of being a scientist, uh, which is uh, like uh, spirituality. That, And we even call it the spirit of inquiry, right? Right, right. The spirit of inquiry. You know, the, the fact that we're impelled to use that word spirit right. <laughs> in our everyday lives tells you yeah. that it's an important word and that it's referring to something tangible, as intangible as it might seem. But I think the other thing about science that uh, warrants comparison with uh, with religion is the sociological 
aspects. Uh, the fact that uh, individuals are hopelessly biased, they cannot perceive the truth by themselves. Science mm-hmm. is not mm-hmm. just an individual activity. Uh, we expect our scientists, we exhort them uh, to uh, be as objective as they can. And a good scientist tries to do so very earnestly, but still fails. And so therefore, there must be a social process that causes science to work uh, um, to mm. to be a truth-discovering process. And that's also similar to religions in which um, in which um, uh, a person is is, um, is is basically does the right thing, not only because they want to, but also because they're in a system that locks them into it. Right. A good religion is bristling with social control mechanisms. <laughs> <laughs> right, right? And, and science is too in its way. Huh? And science is bristling with social control mechanisms. We need those. Yeah. And so I think that we can make science stronger mm. by stressing these comparisons with religions. Hmm. Then, of course, there's the crucial difference which is that science worships truth as its God, factual truth as its God, and, and other religions uh, do not. Okay. Anything else, anything I haven't asked you or that you'd like to add to something? Well, I think that we have assembled an enormous chunk of marble that you need to sculpt. <laughs> All right. Well, that's what we're good at. I've really enjoyed it. And, um, yeah, thank you so much. Well, thank you. This has been a pleasure. When is this likely to air, well, by the we'll way? Well, we'll let you know. I'm not sure because we're heading into a bunch of travel in the summer. So it may be a little while before it's on the air. And then the Teilhard thing is a little bit longer-term project. But but we will keep you posted as we as those plans shape up. Okay. It's been great. Thank you. Okay. Well, thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye-bye.